Welcome to the Jabadoo Education Podcast, Episode 5. Classroom observations measures that have that are being used, most developers claim apply to everybody. That, that you can use them for AP calculus, middle school art, or first grade reading, and they work the same. And again, astoundedly, there's no evidence to support that. You're listening to the Jabadoo Education Podcast. I'm your host, John Ruths, and I'm going to introduce you to some of the leading professionals in the fields of education, psychology, and leadership to bring you the most relevant and up-to-date tips, tricks, and tools for you to use in your classroom. Welcome to Jabadoo. Hello, hello, hello. How are you? You can't actually answer, but I hope you are doing wonderful. We've got a slightly longer show than normal today, uh, and I decided not to edit it down at all because one, each section flows so nicely into the next one, and two, each conversation is just so rich in details that I felt it would diminish the value of the rest of the content if I cut any of it out. So today we have Dr. Helen Patrick on the show. She is a professor of educational psychology out at Purdue University, and she shares with us her latest research involving the dreaded teacher observation. (laughs) I'm sure I am not alone when I say that even though I've got a great relationship with my principal and with my other supervisors, uh, it's just my anxiety level and stress levels just skyrocket when they come into the room, don't they? You know, and obviously the intent behind teacher observations is not malicious, right? It's just an accountability piece. And I get it because you know, every every school leader just wants to make sure that they are helping their teachers become the best teachers that they can be. And observations and reflections and giving suggestions for improvement, these are all very logical ways of achieving that. But Dr. Patrick shares with us today that her research actually exposes the dangers of using observations as a way of actually measuring your effectiveness as a teacher. So you really need to listen to this conversation, especially if your school or state is using observation ratings as a means of promoting or giving bonuses or sometimes firing teachers because there are some serious concerns with the validity of those ratings. So you'll want to hear this one all the way through. And as always, uh, everything that we talk about in this episode can be found on our show notes page. You can go check those out at jabadoo.com slash show five. That is J-A-B-B-E-D-U dot com slash show with the number five. And with that, let's get into our conversation with Dr. Helen Patrick. Dr. Patrick, welcome to the Jabadoo Education Podcast. How are you? Thank you. I'm really, really excited to be here. So thank you for, for asking me. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, we got, uh, I got introduced to you from uh, our very first guest on the show, Dr. Avi Kaplan, and you two went to graduate school together, right? We did. Yes, yeah. University of Michigan. Go Wolverines. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that because I grew up a Penn State fan. <laughs> um, thank you. Yeah, thanks for coming on uh, to the show. Uh, you have some really interesting research that we're going to get into. But before we do that, can you just give us a background of, of who you are? What was your experience coming through school? Uh, and what were some of the activities that you were a part of? And what kind of led you down the path that you ended up taking? Okay. Um, I'll be happy to do that. Right now, I'm um, a professor at Purdue. I'm interested in motivation, uh, but I did not realize that this would be the path that I would take. Uh, I did all my schooling. I grew up and went to school in New Zealand, which has a very different educational system. 
Uh, I did not enjoy school. Uh, I didn't, my elementary school years and my middle school years, I was pretty unhappy at school. I don't think I learned very much. Uh, and I got into trouble a lot for uh, the kinds of things you do when you are bored. So I didn't really enjoy that. And also by the time um, we didn't have a lot of structured activities, so I did a lot of um, outdoor sort of unstructured neighborhood activities, although I did play music, I was involved in Girl Scouts. Uh, in high school, uh, again, I worked hard in high school, I learned a lot, but I also didn't really enjoy that either. So uh, I left school when I was 16. Um, we have a different situation where one takes um, national exams at the end of the third, fourth and fifth year of high school. And you leave at whatever point uh, prepares you for what you do next. And I could not stand the thought of continuing on with higher education. So I left after four years and uh, trained to do something that I didn't need a university education for because I, I just had enough of the whole sure. system. <laughs> uh, but I was always interested in learning. And so I've had this ongoing interest in why is it that some people really want to learn even under conditions that weren't optimal? And why do some people not enjoy school? And, uh, and yeah, so essentially motivation issues. Uh, once I started full-time work, I went to university after, after working, so five o'clock, and I took classes in whatever was on at five o'clock. Okay. <laughs> uh, and I did that for, well, I guess after a few years, you have to, you know, start selectively taking classes, sure. but I had my children, I was working part-time, and it took me eight years to do a bachelor's degree. So I'm close to post a person for motivation as well. <laughs> um, and over this time, that's what I decided that I really enjoyed and where my skills laid. So I completed a master's degree also in New Zealand um, and then realized that if I wanted to be really well prepared for what I was wanting to do, um, which is to conduct educational research, that I needed to come to the US. So my husband and my two children uh, moved with me to Michigan where we didn't really know what we were in for. and. <laughs> Wow. This was the start of what I'm what I'm doing, um, That's and I think this is so. It's taken me a long time to get here, and um, but yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, so how old how old were your kids then when you moved? Six and eight. Six and eight. Okay, so eight. Um, right around the age where I feel like they can still begin to. Uh, integrate into the system a little bit easier before you know. I feel like around you know, third, fourth, fifth grade uh, into middle school, you start to kind of get rooted in your friend systems. And I'm sure it would be a little harder to leave at that point. Um, yeah. But you you did your bachelor's degree and your master's degree all while working full time and being a mom as well, right? Yes, or working yeah. part time and paid okay. employment and part time at home or full time at home. So yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, that's when I hear stories of that people who are, you know, working and you've got young kids and you're still doing this. I mean, that there's only so many hours in the day and um, it's just really cool to hear all, all that you were able to do with that. So, uh, okay. So you got to Michigan, uh, the, the, one of the coldest States in the United States, <laughs> but uh, I guess New Zealand actually is, is far enough South uh, of the equator that um, I don't know. What's the, what's the weather like in New Zealand? Is it pretty similar to Michigan? 
no. No, okay. <laughs> well, there are two islands. So in the Southern mm -hmm. Island, there are mountains and snow. Uh, I was from the north of the North Island, okay. so a far more temperate climate. Uh, it's an island uh, where I lived quite narrow, so you could walk from one coast to the other in an afternoon. Uh, so yes, no kidding. yes. Um, so really very different climate. Uh, one in four people has a boat. Uh, so, in, so I, I still miss the sea. <laughs> sure. It's just, just really, really very different. Uh, yeah. Yes. But when you really want to do something, um, yeah, you can make lots of things. Yeah, happen. you do. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Uh, yeah. So let's get into, um, just a little bit of, of your research. You say you're interested in, uh, motivation and that's kind of the, the path that mm -hmm. you took. Um, we're going to dive in a little bit here into uh, your more recent research, which uh, surrounds teacher observations. But um, where, what happened between I want to research motivation, I want to work on motivation, to now, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to take a look at teacher observations and their effectiveness. Hmm. What was that transition? It's, um, it's actually much more straightforward than it might sound. So, okay. uh, you know, I started off being interested in why some people more motivated than others. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of individual difference questions. But when, if you want to translate that research to education, to individual teachers, it's not really helpful for teachers to know what 30 individual students, how they how they feel. So I became interested in what do teachers do to help create climates in classrooms that are motivating for all students, sure. uh, which meant that uh, it involved not just asking students about themselves, but it also involved a lot of observation in classrooms about what goes on in classrooms. So I'm a classroom researcher. When I conduct research, quite often I'm sitting in the back of classrooms, watching what's happening, recording, or more lately, teachers are recording themselves and, and uploading lessons just because of the, the volume of lessons. So all my career, I've been interested in classrooms and what goes on, what teachers are doing, what they say and do, how that, how that plays out for students, and somehow measuring classroom environments myself. So that translates very nicely over to how do you measure what teachers do for accountability purposes. Yeah, and uh, you're just going back to the, you mentioned that, you, you know, you can upload recordings of lessons now and, you know, that technology does definitely allow um, a, a lot of things to happen quicker because if you had to sit in every single lesson that you mm -hmm. observed, um, it would just, it seems like it would take a lot more time. Let's shift a little bit. So looking at uh, the research that you do, uh, not every teacher knows exactly how research happens and, and everything that goes into um, research and, and why it's so important to follow the system so that on the back end of that research, all of your data that comes out of it is considered valid in the community, right? So That's such an important point, yes. It is, yeah. So, and it's such a uh, stringent process too. So mm -hmm. just touch on that briefly. Um, what is that process from, okay, I'm going to research this. Here are the steps that need to take place in order to make sure that that happens. Okay. Um, first of all, it involves writing um, a fairly extensive document that we submit to the university uh, review board. 
that uh, reviews everything that we're going to do to make sure that it's ethically sound. So that's the very first part. We have to tell them what we're going to do, why we're going to do it, what exactly what questions we're going to ask, how we're going to handle any unforeseen circumstances, etc. So uh, that can take a month, six weeks, whatever to get approved. Um, after that, we then um, have to find people who are willing to partner with us. Uh, the first step for us is to uh, contact superintendents. Uh, we have to explain to them what we're going to do and ask permission to contact principals. And when we do that, um, they may want to see the same sort of information, the consent forms, uh, et cetera. Uh, and sometimes uh, school superintendents have to take all that information to the board for them to vote on. Sometimes uh, school boards may only uh, accept proposals twice a year. So oh. there's quite a time lag there as well. Uh, once principals have said, yes, you may contact our teachers, then we would contact teachers. I like to go out and personally speak to everybody uh, for research that I'm directing. I don't like to send other people. Uh, I like them to know that I'm involved, that I'm overseeing every part of this, that I can vouch for every part of it. Um, I think it's important that um, those who we work with can understand that it's a transparent and fair system and that we don't have a hidden agenda. And I guess I can't speak for all researchers, but certainly me and the, those who I work for, that's, that's the case. So we would explain exactly what we're interested in, why we're interested in, what we're asking them to do, what they can get out of it. And um, just depending on what kinds of questions that we had, we would go about collecting that, that kind of data and uh, like to share that with, with, um, with schools afterwards. Of course, they want to know pretty much right away and uh, it can take years and years for us to, to really answer some of the questions that we're interested in. So it's quite a slow process, actually. It is, yeah. And uh, that, you know, that's part of the reason for this podcast is to try to, you know, uh, at least accelerate as, as much as we can. But, you know, like you said, that, that process is so stringent what was what was the um the response when you reach out to teachers uh what percentage of teachers that you reach out to were saying yep you can come to my classroom and, and observe everything that was happening well we were very very fortunate we asked um only kindergarten teachers and we can talk about this later if you like about why we did that but we went to a range of different schools across indiana we wanted uh not just schools who serve white middle class students but mm. those in um, rural areas and more urban areas uh, with much greater diversity and that those with, with less diversity and we explained to them why we were interested in conducting this research uh what it would mean for uh, them in particular, but to a larger extent, we were asking them to be altruistic because it wasn't going to help them as individuals probably, but hopefully uh, we wanted to collect evidence that, that would help the uh, greater educational community. And pretty much everybody said yes, which just knocked our socks off, I have to say. We were just delighted. And I think that was because they could understand um, why it was so important. I like to believe anyway that the research we were doing 
is really important and that it has tremendous potential for affecting them, whether the research gets done or whether it's not done, it will affect them in, in other ways. And pretty much everybody uh, agreed. I think a, a few teachers for particular reasons, somebody was in her last year before she was in retiring, um, but essentially pretty much everybody said yes. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Um, and you know, it. There's there's two thoughts to that. One is you know when you allow somebody into your classroom, it's it's very uh, exposing because mm -hmm. there you are on display for everybody to see all of your errors that you make every single day because it happens every single day. Um, so it's very exposing. But then the flip side of that coin is that you know you don't go into teaching because it's a glamorous profession. You go into it because you want to make a change in the world. And if allowing somebody into your classroom to do some research that in the long run will produce some uh, change, you know, you, you hope that a lot of teachers join that. So that, that's really cool that you got um, as much uh, participation as you did. Um, and we're, we're talking uh, specifically about the, your most recent research, which our, our last couple episodes have just been general uh, concepts of, that have come out of research, but um, we're going to dive into specifically uh, what you did more recently. And you mentioned mm -hmm. with kindergarten, right? So why don't you yes. talk about, because uh, you had sent me the links, I looked over some of your research and, and the articles that are not yet published. So we're beating all the publishers out there, which I'm kind of yes. excited about. Um, but go ahead and, and just give us an overview of this research and uh, why it's important and why you did it. Yes, certainly. Well, um, we were interested in the way that teachers are being evaluated and uh, particularly through observations, which is the primary, the primary way that most teachers are being evaluated and 70% of teachers are being evaluated almost exclusively by observations. Wow. Uh, and the argument goes that uh, we want to make sure that Every, all children are being taught by an effective teacher. And we can identify effective teachers by watching what they do in the classroom. If we have a standardized set of behaviors that we're looking at, we can check off how well they do them and identify those who are really good. We can um, give them extra bonuses, we can promote them, and especially important, we can identify those who are not doing a good job and we can terminate them or get rid of their tenure or whatever. And um, this became uh, an issue about a decade ago, around 2009, 2010, where there were quite major changes when No Child Left Behind got, got mm -hmm. changed. And so at the time I was interested in measuring what happened in classrooms and I know about the um, accuracy of those kinds of kinds of measurements. And they work fine for research purposes. In research, we look at general patterns of what happens, but we recognize that the results don't apply to any particular one teacher or one classroom. In fact, they may apply to nobody at all. We know that we don't have the level of accuracy that would allow us to be deterministic. We know that the instruments that are out there do not give us the level of precision that we can say we're certain to the point that we could base somebody's hiring or firing on. So when federal laws were changed that um, required that individual teachers be held accountable for their students' mm -hmm. uh, achievement, 
uh, the law said that you had to use multiple measures and in classrooms where there were standardized, standardized tests, that carried a lot of weight, but also so did classroom observations. But like I said, in 70% of classrooms, there aren't those standardized tests and so observation measures were being used. What was interesting is that the observation measures that were being used um, pretty much across the country had no evidence showing that they actually did what they were supposed to do. So we were concerned that teachers were being evaluated, hired and fired on the basis of tests with no evidence at all. Yeah. And that's not the case in any in any other profession. If you go to the doctor and they want to find out whether you're healthy or not and they conduct tests, they don't just randomly think, oh, I think this test might be okay. They have to <laughs> go through they a rigorous <laughs> process to show that these tests actually predict with a certain amount of accuracy. And unfortunately, what happened is that the tests that are you know, by and large used to evaluate teachers have not gone through that process. They look reasonable, but there's been no scientific evidence, or at the time there was no scientific evidence. Actually, now there is some. There was the very large um, measuring effective teachers project that was founded by the Gates Foundation. Yep. Uh, they collected data for three years and it looked primarily at middle school teachers and some um, eighth eighth and ninth grade, maybe uh, tenth grade teachers. And they showed um, really serious, serious limitations with the five different observation measures that they, that they used. Uh, and for one of many reasons, we, we said we will focus on early elementary years because those teachers are particularly at risk. In early elementary, uh, there aren't other standardized achievement tests sure. that if you get some degree of inaccuracy with your observation measures, that that will cancel out. So they don't have that available. In high school and middle school and some districts, students are being surveyed to evaluate their teachers. That's not something that you can use in the early grades either. So early grade teachers are evaluated predominantly by their, by their, um, their classroom observations. And yeah. so... Uh, we decided to focus on that. And we also thought it was really important to, to have um, a very specific fo focus. The classroom observations measures that, have, that are being used, most developers claim apply to everybody, that, that you can use them for AP calculus, middle school art, or yeah. first grade reading, and they work the same. And again, astoundedly, there's no evidence to support that, to sure. support their claims. And actually there's evidence to show that that's not accurate. And when you talk to teachers, teachers know that it's not the same teaching well, yeah, these different <laughs> subjects in different grade levels, right? You're a music teacher, you teach a range of grades and you can't teach in the same way for all those different Absolutely grades. Absolutely not, no. And so, Who's to, who's to know whether the same, the, the same measures are appropriate or not? And if you just lump everybody together, you're not going to be able to identify those differences. The only way that you'll know whether things are different by grade level or by content area is to separate those out. And so we said, let's just be really clear and focused about what we'll uh, conduct our research on. We'll yeah. start with kindergarten. This is at the beginning of the process. And we'll look at two content areas. We'll look at reading 
reading and writing and at mathematics. And so we, we um, observed each of those classrooms and we said, okay, if we're observing classroom reading lessons, how well do those observation scores predict reading achievement? And how well do the observation measures for math class predict math achievement? And I've jumped right ahead to what my research is probably beyond yeah. what you were asking me, but. No, it's okay. And I'm, I'm gonna uh, pause you just for a second because you know, research 101 is remove the variables, right? Okay. And, and mm -hmm. find out which variable is making the change, but the, a classroom and just the educational world in, in whole has so many variables. It's so hard to isolate and say, this is the one that, that helps because mm -hmm. in reality, everything plays off of ev everything else. So I think that's definitely one of the challenges of doing this type of research, um, as opposed to physics. You know, yeah. we, we know very well, okay, if I drop this, it's going to hit the ground at this point because this is the speed of acceleration of gravity, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, I mean, the challenges behind this type of research uh, are obviously very, very large. So, and I mean, like you said, you know, narrowing it down to, okay, we're only going to observe kindergarten. Okay, we're only going to observe these two lessons because if you throw more at it, it's just going to be insurmountable to, to kind of try to isolate those things. So. Just walk us through your findings with um, the observations that you did with the kindergarten classes and uh, these lessons. Um, what, what was the outcome? Well, the main question that we wanted, and I just want to make sure that I made that really clear, we wanted to test the proposition that the scores that uh, teachers would get for particular lessons are going to predict their students' achievement because that's the whole premise. If right. I watch your lesson, and I score the lesson, uh, then those teachers with higher scores are likely to, or are going to have more achievement growth for their students sure. than teachers with lower scores. And you would expect that to be the, the case? Yes, yes. Yeah. And that's the whole premise for having these, these observations. Yes. To, yeah, to make so, sure. Yeah. And there's a lot of money, there's a lot of time gone into that. Uh, so, but like I said, there's no research that, that really showed whether or not that was the case. So we wanted to find out in kindergarten if we, if we measure teachers' literacy lessons, will their score predict students' growth in, in reading and writing? And the same for mathematics. And I have to say that uh, schools are only able to generally conduct one, two, three, four, uh, the ex exceptions, number of observations. We mm -hmm. conducted 20 observations per teacher so that we had- Per teacher, wow. Lessons. Yes, so and we- you had, you had how many teachers again in the study? We had 84 teachers. Okay, I got to do the math here. What is that? 1,600 roughly? Something like that. Lessons. Yes. Holy yes. cow. Yes. And then what we did, because we were testing five different instruments, is that each lesson was being scored according to the different instruments. Actually, so three of What do you mean instruments? Instrument, like obs the observation tier, the observation protocols. Okay, so. so there are a range of different observation measures that um, some schools use one, some states or school districts okay. may use, whether it's the, the, the Danielson framework for teaching or whether that's it's Marzano yeah. or their own one or whatever. So again, that's not standard. And there's an assumption, there's another assumption that regardless of what, what observation instrument your school is using, 
you'll get the same score, effective, ineffective, beginning, whatever, if sure. then if you were evaluated using the set the instrument that a neighboring district used, right? Mm -hmm. So that all of these are going to come out with the same the same score. But mm -hmm. we don't know that. Because there's no research on there's not enough research on it anyway. There's yeah, there's there's not really. Yeah. So okay. um, we took three observations that the developers said you can use this for any content area at all: math, okay. reading, physical education, um, history, whatever. So we yep. took three of those. We took one that was developed just for literacy, and we okay. took one that was developed just for mathematics. Because we wondered if you uh, use an instrument that's supposedly specific to a content area, will that predict achievement better than those that gotcha. And again, uh, you would assume that it, it would. Right. Although we know that pretty much they're not being used by school districts because um, it's a lot more difficult. It's hard enough to really learn one and get reliable using one instrument. Sure. So and there's, the, in, there's in, also the challenge that there's only, for the most part, there's one teacher contract, you know, everybody's contracted the same way. So how can you evaluate people differently based on that? Yeah, no, that's a yeah, challenge. Exactly. So all our lessons were evaluated with the free general and literacy lessons were evaluated with the literacy observation yep. and math okay. with the math ones. So all of those 1600 lessons were um, scored four times. Oh my by four different people because you can't have... No. <laughs> you can't do all that by yourself, no. Well, also for scientific reasons, you don't want to have your... Um, your biases. You know, any biases yeah. or any impressions flowing over. So you sure. want separate, independent eyes going through the process. So we made it clear to teachers that we were evaluating the instruments, the observation measures themselves, not the teachers. So to get at your point about, you know, whether, um, I'm sure teachers were freaked out that we were watching them, but we wanted to make it clear that we were not evaluating them. Before anybody can evaluate teachers, you have to evaluate the instruments to make sure that they You work. have to evaluate and, the evaluations. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. That well, makes good sense, right? It does, yeah. So yes, so we um, evaluated these lessons according to the, the different, um, these different instruments. And it's taken a long time, as you can imagine, scoring these sure. and then conducting the analyses. But for those instruments that we've looked at, uh, we have found we have been able to conduct analyses that shows how well these scores predict students' achievement. Okay. And what we have found across the board with all the measures that we've looked at, all the instruments we've Here we looked go, drum at, roll. Yes. What did we find? That they don't. They don't work. No. Oh, my heavens. <laughs> um, it's just, it, it's mind boggling. Yes, exactly. Now, some of the, some of the results are what we call statistically significant, okay. which means all that means is that it's not a chance. Okay. So it means that if you did it again with a different sample, you would get the same results. Right. And some of, a few of these results are statistically significant, but they're not what we call practically significant. It means that they don't, in the whole scheme of things, their effect is so minimal that they don't mean anything. So if, um, if we think about 
all the things that could affect somebody's growth and achievement. Sure. If we could explain 100% of that, we would know exactly what things are affecting their achievement and then we could perhaps do something about it, right? Sure. The evaluation process assumes that teach, what teachers do in the classroom is the sole, affects is the sole pretty thing. much yeah. all of that or maybe 80 to 90%, most of it, right? Right. First thing that we know is that what teachers do in the classroom in kindergarten um, influence only about 10 to 15% of 20% at the most of their achievement of student growth. Yes. Wow. And then what we know is that the observation scores predict only about two to 3% at most of students growth. So it's statistically significant in that we can believe that finding, but it's not practically significant in that it really doesn't make any difference at wow. all. Wow. And obviously I'm talking about just in kindergarten. And so sure. the big elephant in the room there is, well, what does this mean for first grade, second grade, seventh grade, sure. high school? And we don't know. Nobody's don't done know. that research. Yeah. Um, so this is this is the very beginning of the conversation then, isn't it? Right. Yes, there's there's yes. not necessarily you, you don't look at this research and say, okay, here's the next step. It's more of like, oh, there's the results. Okay, now what? <laughs> yes. But I think this should give us pause for a start. Um, and Certainly. I think it's important for teachers to know that they have to ask questions about their evaluation process that they have to know that just because somebody tells them this assessment, this instrument measures your effectiveness, you need to know, well, what's the evidence that this is an accurate assessment? Sure. That you need to be suspicious and ask those questions. Oh, well, and yeah. I think for whatever reason, teachers are too nice to do that. There, or they're we are. concerned, they have so many other things that they're concerned with. And oftentimes, um, principles about assessment uh, are really not the most interesting, and they don't always, they're not always uppermost in their mind. And sure. so, I'm really happy for the opportunity to say teachers need to know these things, they need to be concerned about them because it influences them whether or not they or their colleagues get a $20,000 raise, which happened some years ago. I don't know that this is happening right now. But I remember you mentioned that. Yeah, I had not heard of that, that teachers were receiving bonuses based on their observation scores. Yes, yes. And, you know, some teachers are, are being fired still, or they're being counseled mm -hmm. to leave before they're fired. Gotcha. And uh, it's, it's, really important for teachers to know that we're not talking about an exact science here. Yeah, that you're right. Because, I mean, you, to a certain extent, from, from an administrative standpoint, you know, I'm, I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second. Uh, you can't analyze everything 
you know, there's, sure. there's no possible way to do that. So I understand wanting to rely on, on two or three things and saying, here's, here's how we measure the effectiveness of, of our teachers. Um, but from a teacher's standpoint, you know, I wouldn't come out guns a-blazing saying, oh, there's, there's no reason that I should be observed and, and anything like that. Like, you, you do have to play into the system a little bit. But mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's fascinating to know just, like, what the research now is showing us and then to just be aware and be on the front lines of the conversation now, uh, either within your building or within your district in any way that you can, saying there, there needs to be some change here uh, in one way or another. So, um, yes. and thank you for, for the research that you're doing on that. This, this was a wonderful conversation. If any teachers are like going holy, like their jaws on the floor, like mine is right now, um, what, what can we do as teachers? Like what would be your suggestion for, okay, here's, here's the data that came out of this research. What do we do with this data now? Well, I'm certainly not going to suggest that they say, I'm not letting you to come come and observe me sure. or, yeah. Oh, or yeah. throw those things out. That, that um, makes more problems than, than the... Sure, than the sure. And you're sure. right, we have to work in the system. But we have to, and we certainly know that the more observations that we have, the more accurate our results can be. Actually, sure. some of our research shows that we may need seven or eight or nine observations before our results. We can really be more certain that we've got um, handle sure. on the true picture. And that's about but, sample size too. You know, if you yes, can't, yes. can't complete any research with only four people and expect it to be valid. Yeah. Exactly. So why would but, we have two or three, yeah, two or three or four observations and expect that to be the full picture of our teaching? Yeah. yeah. It, it makes I a lot of sense. Teachers, I think teachers can document what they're doing. Um, I think we found that it's very easy for teachers to record their own instruction. Um, many classrooms these days have iPads for instructional use mm-hmm. and um, or even uh, mobile phones have really wonderful video capacity sure. and they can record their own lessons. In, in our um, research project, the uh, lessons that, that the teachers recorded were owned by the teachers themselves. They could download them, keep them. We encouraged them to uh, watch them for themselves. Um, many teachers said they learned a lot from doing that, but also they could use them to supplement their own observation evaluations so okay. that if they um, had captured examples that were that showed particular skills, particular situations that they felt that they handled well or that they thought were good exemplars of their instruction, they could show those to whoever was evaluating them and supplement the observations. Um, I think these are these are tools that, that uh, teachers could consider using more often as well to increase the the information that's available to those who are who are evaluating them. Yeah, and a, a, the general movement of being more reflective on on your practice and on your work uh, is definitely something that is is up and coming. And having uh, you got you do have to be careful about recording video mm-hmm. of yourself. You got to make sure that that's allowed in in your district. But I mean, at at minimum, you can record yourself with no student student bases or anything like that. Um, but yeah, to document and to make sure that you have that uh, for yourself should whatever observation you are going through just goes south for whatever reason, um, just to have that documentation is definitely a great suggestion um, if we aren't doing that already. Um, 
just looking at if you want to help with any sort of research that's going on, do you know, are there any sort of resources that teachers can, can go sign up and say, like raise their hand, say, yes, I want to be a part of any research that's happening with any of our local uh, universities? That's a great question. I don't know of anywhere like that. Um, yeah, I, I don't know all either. I could think of is perhaps contacting colleges of education and saying that I'd be interested in doing this research. Uh, but even for teachers who may be interested, I would still have to start at the superintendent level. And if the superintendent said, no, we don't want you to come in and do this um, research in our school district then it doesn't matter what the teachers interested gotcha. in doing gotcha, sure. so and the same with the principal so but i think if the teacher is also interested in um conducting research and by research we we're talking about very small number of experiments actually oftentimes it's answering questions about what do people think about or what kinds of things are most motivating for students or mm -hmm. what what happens if i do x rather than y um, if a teacher wants to know those kinds of things and help improve his or her instruction teachers can contact colleges of education directly sure. look at the websites find out what people are interested contact them and if they initiate the research they can uh, enter into a partnership with researchers it doesn't have to be researcher driven uh, there's it can be a partnership and research and school teachers can say here's what i want to learn about can you work with me and uh, help me answer these questions there you go yeah, yeah. Very, very cool. Well, this is this has been one of my longer conversations, but uh, I'm I'm sitting here just like eyes are wide open. I, I thought it was very fascinating. So we will wrap up here. Um, we'll move on to our exit ticket questions. These are the same questions that I ask every guest that comes on the show. So our first question is: Do you have a book recommendation? It doesn't necessarily need to be something along your line of research, but just here's a book that teachers should read at some point. Well, Doing School by Denise Pope is a wonderful book. Uh, it's a real eye-opener. It's probably quite old by now, but I think it's, it's the kind of book you could read in um, a weekend. It's a okay. very easy read. I like read. those. <laughs> yeah, me too. Uh, it's all about student motivation in middle school, I believe. Okay. And it has a whole lot of eye openers. So okay. supposedly, uh, Denise Pope went into um, a school and said, show me your most engaged students, your best students. I want to find out more about their experiences. And then she spent a year following these students. And each chapter is about a different student. And um, it's thoroughly engaging. And it she found not at all what she thought she would find. That's and although it's about middle school, um, I think it's wildly appropriate for high school and should give elementary teachers um, time to pause as well. So I would mm -hmm. recommend that. And if okay. I can have a second, uh, 50 Myths and Lies That Threaten America's Public School by David mm -hmm. Berliner. I would, um, that's also, uh, it has, 50 different uh, things that are pop, that are often believed with page to two pages max for each of those. So you could sit and read one or two or skim through the kinds of issues okay. or myths that are most uh, of most interest to you. And I think that's a really wonderful read. Again, uh, it's written for non-academics for the public, but it's everything is undergirded by really sound research. 
Okay, excellent. And uh, again, anything that we talk about on this episode can be found on our show notes page. So those will be linked up there. Uh, so if you are listening and you go, oh, I those sound like I might want to read them, you can go check out our show notes page to find the links to those. Great. Question number two, uh, what would be another resource, uh, either a hard copy resource or an online or digital resource that you would recommend teachers who should go check out? Mm, um, I wish I had a really great web page or something that I could send you to. I'm sort of a little old fashioned in that I prefer books and hard copies. But there's also another wonderful uh, resource called How People Learn um, by the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine. And uh, it's a book that's, again, very accessible compilation of what, what we know best about how people learn, published in 2018. And okay. you can buy it, but the chapters are downloadable free as well. So I can oh. give you the, the yeah, perfect info for that. And again, everything is really uh, sound, although it won't spell out the research in the kind of way academics write about. Sure, but it's almost then more consumable for the layperson. <laughs> yes, yes. And and for everybody who wants to be able to understand it without, you know, I like reading things like that too, even though I sometimes read read um, more more complicated work. But yeah. yes. No, absolutely. And that, that sounds fantastic. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely link that up. Uh, what would be one piece of advice you would want to give teachers, uh, especially maybe teachers who are fresh into their careers? Well, it's a loaded question. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's that's fine. I mean, I try not to give teachers too much advice because um, I'm not a teacher, but I work with teachers. One thing is what okay. I've said already is to be skeptical. Don't believe things just because people tell you. Mm. Um, and so I talked about that in the context of evaluation. But um, a lot of people think they know a lot about education because they were at school. Um, and so, mm. I, um, yeah, so mm. I I think I like we need to, to <laughs> I think we need to be skeptical. And I guess my other thing is that if a researcher does approach you and asks if you would participate in research, that you don't say no right away, but you consider it and allow them to uh, get to know you a little and earn your trust. And mm -hmm. I've really appreciated that the teachers have agreed. Uh, in the research we just talked about, we had a number of first year teachers. And that was really gutsy on their part. And I'm really delighted that they trusted us enough. Um, we had veteran yeah. teachers, teachers who had been teaching for 38, 40 years as well. But so if, if a researcher asks you, please, please say yes, because we can't mm -hmm. do our research without, without, um, without teachers who partner with us. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Well, if anybody has any questions uh, regarding your research or just uh, wants to reach out to you, where would be the best place that they could find you? Uh, email is the best, hpatrick at purdue.edu. Okay. And I try to try to answer those. But if I don't answer immediately, sometimes I get snowed under. Email me again. If I didn't oh. reply, it's not because I didn't want to. <laughs> I totally, totally understand. Yeah. And uh, again, all of that will be linked up in our show notes page. Thank Dr. You. Helen Patrick, man, what a fun conversation. Thank you so much for sharing all of your research and your insight. And uh, this, this was wonderful. Thanks for coming on. Well, thanks for inviting me. I had a blast too. Awesome. Take care. Bye-bye. Man, I am still in shock from that conversation. I mean, it's just so counterintuitive, isn't it? Common sense would make you think that if you have an unbiased instrument 
um, such as the Danielson framework or any of the other ones mentioned, that whatever your observation rating is, it should correlate with student growth in your classroom, right? That just makes sense. But there's zero evidence that that is the case. And now Dr. Patrick's research shows that many of those frameworks or instruments being used uh, just don't measure the correct things that correlate with student performance. So I, I just want to reiterate here, though, that uh, this was not an anti-observation episode <laughs> by any means, okay? There are some real benefits to having somebody else come observe what you do in your classroom. You know, outside perspectives bring fresh ideas, and they allow you a chance to reflect on your teaching. Um, and these are both really important aspects of developing into an excellent teacher. So this wasn't an anti-observation episode, okay? But... It's important to know what the research is saying in regards to the tools being used to measure and analyze your observations and then the actions taken based on those observation scores. That's what we've been talking about in this episode and that's the important thing here. So if I were to suggest one takeaway from this, it's simply just to get involved in the conversation. I mean, this is the beginning of the research and therefore it's the beginning of the conversation and there's no real specific actionable takeaways other than maybe just reach out to your principal or other administrator and share this podcast episode with them or share the show notes page uh, where I'll attach some of the research uh, documents available that we talked about just so that your administrators are aware of the research and can make educated decisions and have educated conversations with upper level administrators, uh, local state legislators, school boards, etc. You know, just regarding the use of these observation tools when it comes to reward and punishment for teachers. So I hope that this information was valuable to you. And if it was, do me a favor and go to our show notes page, leave a comment down at the bottom about what struck you about this. What are some resources maybe that you know about that we didn't mention? Uh, what are some steps you might take? Anything to get the conversation going. Um, that comment section, as well as everything else that we talked about on today's episode, can be found on our show notes page at jabadoo.com slash show five. And I hope you are doing well. I hope this was valuable. And until next time, go teach. Thank you so much for listening to the Jabadoo Education Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to hear more evidence-based strategies for improving your educational career, go ahead and click that subscribe button so you can get the next episode as soon as it is released. If you think this information was beneficial and you think more teachers should hear it, the greatest compliment you can give us is to share this episode with a colleague, either through a text message, email, or social media. And last but not least, if you think more teachers need to hear more of what we are talking about, please go leave us a five-star rating and review on your platform of choice. And that will simply let the algorithm know that you are finding value in this content and it will help boost our show to the top of the list when people search for education shows. Thank you. I appreciate you. And I will see you on the next episode of the Jabadoo Education Podcast.